We're reading today from Ephesians chapter 5, picking up in verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is God's word. Thank you, Joanna. Well, um, if you're visiting or haven't been here for a while, you're probably saying to yourself, why did I not stay out of the rain today and not come? Let me try and explain that. We're, we're working through this ancient letter, Paul, the Apostle Paul's letter to churches in ancient Ephesus. This is modern-day Turkey. Uh, churches he had started, planted, developed there. He's writing from prison in Rome. And as a prisoner of the state, under house arrest, he's writing letters to all these churches that he had a close relationship with throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, this is the middle of the first century. Uh, so he writes a letter to churches around Ephesus, and, and we've been, for the last three months, working bit by bit through this letter. Uh, and if you've been with us already, um, and of course, you could always uh, follow along uh, with our online recordings. Uh, we, we have all these recordings uh, from the last several weeks. But some of you will remember from earlier in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul had said that the Christian is to be filled with God's Spirit. We talked about how to put on the new self, the God-like self, the Christ-like self, the Christian has to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian should allow the Spirit of God to direct him, to inspire her, to lead them in their lives. So being filled with the Holy Spirit, it allows us to live our lives wisely, especially in our homes where we spend most of our time. Now, if Paul was willing to pry into our time management, which we talked about last week, right? If Paul is willing to pry into your time management, he's going to pry into your marriage. Marriage is the most complex, challenging of all human relationships. And therefore, I think it's the most vulnerable. 
of all human relationships. Marriage is susceptible to the most cunning deception, and therefore we've seen in our own day how uh, marriage, as it's been understood for thousands upon thousands of years, uh, is, is, is um, uh, with a lot of effort, uh, there are attempts to redefine it and change it and alter its meaning. So it's susceptible to uh, the most cunning deception, but it's also susceptible to the most deplorable abuse between spouses. It is also susceptible to the most alienating loneliness, is it not? Whether you are divorced or stay married, marriage can be incredibly lonely. It's no accident that Satan first attacked humanity at its social core, which is marriage. The first marriage, we're told in the book of Genesis, not only turned against God, then it turned against itself. And, and when our Creator said to the man, and specifically to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you, God was foretelling for all humanity the timeless struggle that would take place once marriage was in the grips of human sin and brokenness. God is saying that forever in human history there would be this struggle, this dynamic, to either take control of the marriage or keep control of the marriage. Now, if you're feeling anxious right now, take a breath. You're in a good place. We're all anxious right now, so you're in good company. And look, you know, you read verses like this that you just heard, and you may feel scandalized that the Apostle Paul is telling you to forsake your own personhood, to reject your freedom. And the recent uh, late scholar and preacher, John Stott, I think aptly wrote these words. He says, ours is an age of liberation, not least for women and children and workers, and anything suggestive of oppression is deeply resented and strongly resisted. I think that's important to note. So I would encourage you, though, to not read your past and present experiences into Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, I want to encourage you to not read your past and present experiences into this Bible passage, but allow this passage to speak into your past and present experiences. Marriages that imitate Jesus, actually, are worth pursuing and worth preserving and worth enjoying. And as you look at Ephesians chapter 5, what I pray you will discover is, and we'll talk about three things, the dynamics of these three words that you heard read to you today, the dynamics of submission, the dynamics of love, and the dynamics of service. We're going to look at the dynamics of submission in a marriage, but we're going to look at the dynamics of love in a marriage, and finally, we're going to look at grace-filled service as it applies to the marital relationship. So let's begin. The dynamics of submission are, yes, unpopular. Yes, contentious. But I hope you will see that in all aspects of life, some form of submission is necessary. Now, the statement that 
frankly, is most demonized by some or most weaponized by others is verse 22. Some people demonize it and some people weaponize the words, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, before I even try to explain what that means, we have to look at its context. We have to consider what's taking place before and after it. So, in many of your English Bibles, it shows a break and an editorial heading that the original Greek manuscripts of the New Testament did not show. The original ancient Greek manuscripts show a continuation of the previous flow of thought into verse 22. If you were with us last week, you will remember how Paul said to everybody in the church, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what I told you earlier this morning is why we practice church membership. We submit to one another out of reverence for our Lord Jesus. And actually, in the original, in the original manuscripts, the word submit goes in verse 21, not with wives in verse 22. It's a continuation of that thought. And the word that Paul employed in which we translate submit it was not only a request for uh, wives towards their husbands, but it was also a request for congregations toward their elders for, in 1 Peter chapter 5. It was a request using the same word for all citizens to respect the civil government in Romans chapter 13. And you discover in Luke chapter 2 that even the Son of God, the boy Jesus, submitted to his mom and dad, Mary and Joseph, when they told him in the temple, son, it's time to come home. And so Paul has already shown us and urged that in a healthy church, everyone submits. And so John Stott replies by saying submission is actually a humble recognition of the divine ordering of society. From governments down to churches, and communities and households. Willing submission curbs chaos at every level of human interaction and relationship. So when Paul says to women, when he says to wives to submit to their husbands, and I quote, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, that actually reflects a woman's devotion to Jesus as her Lord. Jesus who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. He's telling us to submit to a man who said, I am gentle and lowly in heart. It is actually less a reflection of her husband as if he were Jesus. He is not. So when Paul writes, wives should submit in everything to their husbands, and now our hearts are moving really fast. When Paul says that, he could not have meant... By in everything, he could not have meant always in every instance. Listen up if you've ever taken this passage and used it as a weapon against somebody. Paul could not have meant by saying in everything, always and in every instance, as in submitting to abusive behavior or submitting to ungodly behavior and a mentality. John Stott again says Paul is not commanding unconditional obedience. Even the apostles themselves, Peter and John and all the apostles, you read in Acts chapter, 
chapter 5, um, even though the Sanhedrin, which were the religious and kind of civil authorities in Jerusalem surrounding the temple, when the apostles were ordered by the Sanhedrin to stop talking to people in public about Jesus, the apostles said to their leaders, did I miss it? Where'd it go? We must obey God rather than men. So Paul was not commanding unconditional obedience in a vacuum, but willing submission in a community where everyone is submitting to Jesus. And so I, I want to respectfully challenge the objection that this teaching of Paul was only limited to Paul's time and Paul's day. For instance, we, we, we actually know that in that time and in most periods of human history until most recently, and unfortunately, uh, women were not well-educated. Uh, women had far fewer legal rights than men, and in, in the Roman society, in the Greek society, and even in ancient Jewish culture, uh, women were seen as having an inferior social status to men. And all of that is true, and all of that is shamefully unfortunate. But the interesting thing is Paul did not refer to those concerns as his reasons for submission. He actually refers, in verse 23, Paul's reasoning is based on him, him saying that Christ is the head of the church. Did you notice that? This is the basis of Paul's reasoning for submission. He says Christ is the head of the church. So, and here's the thing, like Jesus is always the head of his church. He was 2,000 years ago, he still is now. And Jesus will remain the head of his church until he returns, whenever that's going to be. So there seems to be a consistent principle here that Paul's driving at that spans time and culture and circumstance. And it has to do with Jesus Christ being our role model. Now listen, I'm going to come back to that. So just Jesus as our role model, just pin that in the back of your brain. Submission cannot be understood, and it will have very little value and no beauty and absolutely offer no hope to us without love. The dynamics of love complement submission, according to Paul. And so, to husbands, Paul spends, listen, don't miss this, twice the amount of ink trying to get his point across to us guys. Twice as long telling us what our responsibilities are if we're going to submit to Jesus. And so he says in verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Paul is stressing here as complementary to submission Listen to this, it's not what you expect. It's not what the Romans expected. It's not what the Greeks or the ancient Jews expected. Paul is saying the complement to submission is actually not authority. It's love. That's the complement to submission, not authority. Not submission to authority. The complement is love. Submission to love as the church submits to the love of Christ. And he writes on 
with many beautiful words that we don't have time to get into today, but uh, we can sum them up in verse 27. Paul talks about what the goal of a husband's love for his wife should be. Verse 27, that she might be holy and without blemish. But loving his wife, and and now listen, it's not a self-serving affection so that you can get attention, so that you can be pleasured, so that you can feel like you're respected in your home. It's not that kind of an interaction. Loving your wife sacrificially allows a man to carve out space with resources for his wife's good and flourishing and ultimate benefit. Do you see the motive of love is not for anything in return, but to truly bless and build up and encourage and empower the other person? As a scholar, Lynn Kohick puts it so well, she basically says, as she treats this passage, she says, Paul takes the ancient mindset and turns it on its head. And his response to submission is love, not authority. And so Lynn Kohick writes, such actions undermine the gender hierarchy by ceding honor to the wife as worthy of the husband's self-sacrifice, right? And so in a society where men were saying, I deserve honor, Paul flips it on its head and says, your wives deserve honor. You love them because they deserve honor. So as with submission, the goal of love is the other spouse's Flourishing, And so you see two dynamics where both partners are interacting, are living for the benefit of the other. And so I am urging us as a church, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, God bless you, I'm glad you're here. But I'm specifically talking to the members and the attenders of our church who claim to follow Jesus. I urge us to practice truly Christian marriages. Forget about what you learned from your parents. Forget about what you're watching in the movies and what you see on your Facebook feeds. Truly Christian marriages share a dynamic of submission and love where both partners are built up and enabled to flourish. And I urge us to practice not only truly Christian marriages, but to encourage truly Christian marriages and to pray for truly Christian marriages. Listen, wives and husbands, we all have a lot to learn. And there is a lot of room for all of us to grow. Good, let's make this a safe place to grow. To my single friends out there, you have a beautiful gift. And you're gonna roll your eyes at me, but I want you to think about it this week. You have a beautiful gift. You have the liberty, you have the liberty to pray for other people's marriages without the burden of your own. And I am not, uh, I am telling you marriage is a burden. It is a beautiful burden. You know what my wife has to put up with? (laughs) But I'm telling you, if you're a single, God has given you, at least right now, a beautiful gift to pray for and encourage true Christian marriages without carrying the weight, the complicated weight of your own. Now, kids, they're mostly gone. Some of you are here, good. All right, teenagers. If you're a kid or a teenager or a young adult, I'm telling you right now, start praying for your future spouse. Do it right now, start tonight. I don't care if you don't know who they are yet and you haven't met them yet, you may not know who they are for another 10 years. Start praying for your future spouse right now. Pray that God blesses them. 
Pray that God even now begins to protect them and give them everything they need to flourish in this life so that you know what's going to happen when you finally meet them and go, ah, this is the person. You are already going to be socially and and, and mentally conditioned to know that you exist for their good and they do not exist to serve you. You start doing, don't wait until you meet them. Right now, ask God to bless them. And then he's gonna reveal them to you someday, your future husband, your future wife, and you're gonna go, this is the person that God has entrusted to me. And I am a part, maybe the biggest role to play in God's plan for their eternal flourishing. You begin to think that way now and it won't be an absolute tantrum when you get married and realize half your life belongs to another, all of your life belongs to another person. Condition yourself now by praying for them whoever they are. Let's practice and encourage and pray for truly Christian marriages because in a world where spouses leverage the marriage for control, These dynamics show grace. In a society where marriage is weakening and is on the ropes, let's not further weaken it. Let's not have the Christian church further weaken marriage in our society. Let's give them a better alternative. Now, some of you may be thinking right now, or, or if you're not thinking this, you have heard it uh, or are considering it, the objection that goes something like this. Listen, it's because of these ancient, regressive household codes in the Bible that marriage is weak. Paul is the problem. That's why marriage is weak. Paul's the problem. The New Testament is the problem. The Bible is the problem. That's why marriage is weak. I just want to, again, respectfully push back on that. Despite our own objections and frustrations to what we're reading the Apostle Paul say and what we see in the Bible, let me ask you an honest question. What alternatives work better? I'm I'm not being rhetorical. I'm asking you the question. What alternatives for the flourishing of a healthy marriage work better than what we're reading in Ephesians chapter 4? What view of marriage has ever produced a better dynamic for human flourishing? For the mutual flourishing and happiness of both spouses and for the protection of vulnerable spouses and children? Show me a better model. I'm serious. Email me. Take me out for coffee. Talk, to your commu- talk in your community groups. We rage against this stuff, but, but show me a better model for healthy marriages. Show me a safer environment cultivated by, than this. Show me a safer environment for abused spouses and children than what Paul is laying out before us. You will not find a better model because marriage in a broken world will always be complicated and hard. The best marriages like a garden require constant cultivation and weeding and watering and f- in order to enjoy and to see it flourish. Let me ask you, have your dark memories and sad experiences of bad marriages been because of Ephesians chapter 5 or because of the opposite? 
Are your bad experiences and memories of marriage because Ephesians 5 wasn't being lived out by two people in marriage? Where both spouses were not looking out for the good of the other. Isn't that the situation? Isn't it because of the opposite behavior of Ephesians chapter 5 that we have bad memories of what ugly marriages look like? Think about that. You know, last week, if you were here, you remember that this, we, we talked about how the spirit-filled Christian will not waste their life, right? If you're living as filled by the Holy Spirit, inspired by the Spirit of God, it's impossible for you to waste your life. Well, a spirit-filled Christian cannot destroy a marriage or anybody else's marriage. It's not possible if you are following the direction and guidance and wisdom and grace of the Spirit of God in your life, if you are filled with the Spirit, you will not wreck your marriage because you'll be listening to Him. A Spirit-filled husband will not abuse or abandon his responsibility. A Spirit-filled wife will not undermine or despise her husband's role. And if you are doing any of those things, and let's admit, to some degree, we all are. There's a lot of room to learn, to grow, and there's so much that we should learn. And we have a God who is willing to teach us and has laid it all out for us. And if we test it, we will discover that it works. Not perfectly. We're all looking at a bunch of sinners here. And your spouse knows that you're a bigger sinner than any of us know. Just like mine knows that I'm a bigger sinner than any of you know. But listen, the dynamics of grace-filled service define what marriage is. We're looking for definitions of marriage as a society. And everyone's all over the place. And everyone's angry with everybody. And everyone's trying to fight for the new definition of marriage. And I'm telling you, the best definition of marriage is Jesus' own marriage. You want to find a marriage that is healthy for the flourishing of both partners and their family you want a good model to define it, look at Jesus and his marriage. Verse 23, Paul says, and, and this really is, it's the linchpin of his whole discussion. It's where it all comes from. He says, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. And that word savior, scholars say, was such a unique way for Paul to describe what's going on in a marriage as exemplified by Jesus. See, Paul points out, he specifically uses the word savior to show us that Jesus saved his bride. He redeemed his bride. He rescued her. He ransomed his bride. Christ, the world over and throughout history, is perfecting the church. Yes, slowly and patiently. But Jesus is perfecting his church, and you know what? This is amazing. This is all over the New Testament. A day will come, Jesus wants, listen to this, Jesus wants the whole universe to see a beautiful church. That's what he's doing. That's what, you, why is it taking forever for him to come back? He is perfecting his church because he wants the entire universe, angels and demons, and all of creation to see a beautiful bride, his bride. It's kind of like a wedding. We've all been to weddings, right? And, and, and I've been to a billion weddings uh, because of kind of my line of work. Um, 
There, something palpable happens when the door, you, everybody is waiting in almost silence and, and you know, Paco Bell's cannon or whatever is blah, blah, blah. And, and everybody's waiting and the door opens and there's the bride. And it's like all the air gets sucked out of the room. And I'm telling you, it's palpable. It's like, it's as if everybody in the room, as they look at that bride beginning to slowly come down the aisle, it's like everybody is saying to themselves, that is the most beautiful person in this room. And I'm not saying that you don't think your wife is the most beautiful person in the world, or your husband is the most handsome person in the world, but it, there is something palpable going on when the bride appears and comes down the aisle. It's like everybody in the place stops what they're doing, they stand up and they stare at this beautiful creation, and you, that is the most beautiful person here. It would be scandalous for somebody to go, look at my wife, look at my husband. No, it's like everybody's looking at her. It's all for her. Jesus can't wait to show the entire universe that the church is the most beautiful thing he has ever created. And the Bible urges Christians to let that mentality of Jesus for his bride inspire their own marriages. Marriages where grace-filled submission and grace-filled love rule, where what rules is not a battle of your wills or a contest of your minds and ability to manipulate the other. Marriages where, where it's not a self-preserving silence that rules, but a marriage where grace-filled love and submission rule. You know, you may be asking yourself the question, like our entire society is, how are such relationships ever even possible? Well, Paul quotes Genesis chapter 2. He quotes, he goes back to marriage to the very beginning, before sin entered, before the serpent showed up, before the animosity between the two of them began and the rest of it is history, before all of that happened when things were still right and perfect and good. Moses declared in Genesis chapter 2, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then after quoting that, Paul says, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So the profound mystery that Paul is referring to is that one flesh one body unity that establishes a marriage. This mysterious but real unity, a, a emotional unity, a physiological, psychological unity, a reproductive unity, even in our world, a legal unity, a true unity where two souls somehow in this life become as one person. Paul is saying that is a profound mystery, and yet he's saying... He's saying that is a great picture of how Christ wed himself to us, to all of us as the church, as his bride. Paul claims that that unity between a man and a woman is a picture of Jesus wedding 
all of us to himself. And Paul keeps talking about unity, right? Jews and Gentiles, huge deal. Now unified through Jesus. And now he's saying husbands and wives, right? Those ancient, those ancient foes, that ancient love-hate relationship, he's saying actually that one flesh relationship is a beautiful picture in broken humanity of what Christ is doing for his church. Grace-filled marriages are actually possible when they are modeled after Jesus Christ. Do you realize that Jesus in both his submission and his love fulfilled each role? He fulfilled the role of the wife and he fulfilled the role of a husband. It was his willing submission to God, his father, that inspires a spirit-filled woman. It was his sacrificial love for us that inspires a spirit-filled man. If Jesus could lay down his life, then so can you. If Jesus could submit to the Father, then so can you. Marriages that imitate Jesus are worth pursuing. Marriages that imitate Jesus are worth preserving at all costs. You never forget that. I don't care if you need counseling. I don't care if you need to read books. I don't care if you need help. Marriages that reflect the love and grace of Jesus Christ are worthy of preserving at all costs. And marriages that imitate Jesus, you will discover are worth enjoying. So as a church, let us practice truly Christian marriages. Let us encourage and pray for truly Christian marriages where submission and love cultivate mutual service and, and breathe grace into our pain. Marriages where children and neighbors witness God's grace displayed through women and men who submit themselves to Jesus, their Lord. Oh, this is tough stuff, yeah? Listen, we got all sorts of resources. We've got books. We, 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 we have resources that you can listen to. You have community groups. These are things that you can talk about in your community groups without getting into the specifics of your own marriage. Just read a book or a study as a community group without getting too personal. Just talk about what the passage says. Talk about what the Bible says. What would it take for us to cultivate marriages where we know that our spouses are safe, where we know that our children are going to have not a perfect, but a healthy example? As they grow up, they can look back and go, you know what? My parents were far from perfect. Have you ever met my parents? They're not in the room right now. They worship here if you're not from here. My parents are far from perfect. I could tell you stories. I won't. But I know they loved each other. And you know what? Maybe the cycle stops with you. Maybe you can't point back and go, oh, I had a great example. All right, you know what? Let's, you be the example for your children. You be the example for your grandchildren. And let us help each other. Marriages that imitate Jesus are worth preserving 
and pursuing. Let's pray. Our Father, uh, this is tough stuff because for some reason, uh, marriage, the, 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 the sensitivity, the vulnerability, the pain, and the joy of marriage, it cuts to, to the heart of the human experience. We want it, but it is so difficult. And Father, I guess it reminds us of how we relate to you. We, 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 we want to follow you, but it is so difficult. We do not want to give up our own way of looking at things. Jesus, we need you. Thank you for showing us that you are the perfect spouse. Thank you that whatever our fears are, whatever our struggles are, whatever our, our stubbornness might be, if we look to you, you will show us the way. And uh, we thank you that you loved us and submitted yourself to the Father and to death so that we could be with you. And Lord, help us uh, to pursue healthy environments where we can flourish in our households. Amen.